0: is Meatless, a podcast about eating from how we get to next. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food and drink writer. I'll be having conversations with chefs, writers, and more about how their personal and political beliefs determine whether or not they eat meat. The show asks the question, how do identity, culture, economics, and history affect a diet? In this episode, I talked to Ethan Frisch and Ori Zohar of Burlap & Barrel Single Origin Spices. They're applying models used in coffee and chocolate importation to spices by paying fair wages and having a transparent supply chain. Through partnerships with both high-end chefs and donations to food justice groups, they've changed the story of what it means to be a social-driven enterprise by also providing an incredibly good product. We talk about how the company started, their first business together that merged revolution in ice cream and human and edible labor in spice farming. (laughs) So hi, Ethan and Ori. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Uh, so, did you cooked last night. I, I did.
1: I cooked. Uh, well, okay. So, here's the story. Okay, great. I was theoretically going to cook last night. Uh, I was for an event at Huertas uh, in the East Village, and they do these monthly takeovers with other chefs. Um, so, I had showed up with a, a box of spices last week, and we had a you know, brainstorming session, what we were going to make, what was sort of in keeping with their Basque or, or Spanish cuisine in general. Uh, and then I showed up for the event yesterday, and everything was already done. Really? So I <laughs> got credit for cooking without actually having to cook. I don't know. It was it was funny. I uh, they they let me slice some scallops. I think, but I, it, it was more of like a oh, wow. a pity jet. Like fine, slice some scallops. Say <laughs> so you on. had part of this. Um, <laughs> right. Exactly. But it was. It's always cool to see what what. Uh, very accomplished chefs do with ingredients that they've never worked with before. So to to give them a box of spices, some of which they've seen, some of which are different versions than what they've seen before and some of which they had never seen before. Right. And then let them play around. That's always fun.
0: What were the spices? Uh,
1: what did I, what did we do? Um, some of the more, some of the rarer ones were things like a, a what's called a terebinth pistachio. It's a, a wild pistachio variety that only grows uh, around the city of Gaziantep in southeastern Turkey. Um, it looks like a pistachio, but, but if it were shrunk to like a 10th of the size, uh, and it's got the fruit still on, pistachio grows on a tree, like almost like little peaches or something. Uh, so they have this fuzzy fruit coating around the shell and on the terebinth pistachio on, on regular pistachios, they, they take the fruit off. And so you eat the, the pit, the nut of the pistachio fruit, but on the, the terebinth, these little wild pistachios, they leave the fruit on and the fruit is pretty astringent, kind of acidic, kind of tannic, um, and so you crunch through it, and you get this like like acidic tannic thing from the fruit, and this sweet nutty flavor from the from the pistachio nut in the middle. So it's pretty. It's a cool ingredient. Um, I don't remember what that made it into on any of the dishes. Anyway, whatever they <laughs> they did something fun with that. Um, uh, there are a couple of different chili varieties. A very rare. Guatemalan chili pepper called a Cobanero chili, which only grows around this city called Coban. So that made it into a couple, of, like a house made hot sauce with a serrano pepper and a couple of other things. Um, what else did they Suma, make? blue poppy yeah. seeds. They made a blue poppy seed cake, uh, a savory, savory cake, cake. with uh, like an anchovy butter. Um, sumac and black lime made it onto a uh, the scallop crudo, <laughs> expertly sliced, if I do say so myself. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great meal. And the cocktails, they do some really spectacular cocktails. Oh, a saffron, cocktail. they had a saffron margarita, they did a cumin, uh, old fashioned, which yeah. was really good with a fig bourbon, fig infused bourbon, and a fennel wow. sidecar. Yeah, yeah, some cool stuff. Yeah, that great. sounds Really good.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So can each of you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate?
2: So this is Ori. Um, uh, I was born in Tel Aviv in Israel. Uh, When I was five, uh, the family moved to Baltimore. And so that uh, that was definitely a change where we moved to Baltimore and didn't really speak English that well and tried to figure stuff out. And there were a lot of funny mistakes and things like that that a bunch of non-native, like non-Americans, were coming in trying to figure things out without really having the skill set to do so. Um, but uh, grew up in Israel and kind of got introduced to kind of Mediterranean, Middle Eastern cuisine. Um, when I came to Baltimore, my parents just kept cooking what they knew, um, and so we our meals were funny. Where we'd have the salad at the end of the meal instead of a dessert, which was a light way to end the meal. We ate primarily vegetables. We ate fish every once in a while, and and even more rarely we would eat meat. Um, And my dad is a marine biologist, and so whatever was going on there with the marine biology, he was working on sustainable marine aquaculture, and whatever kind of came out of all those experiments of growing fish to market size would then come home to the plate. So um, often Mediterranean fish, uh, uh, often crabs, oysters, things like that. So um, that's how I kind of grew up in Baltimore in kind of an American environment, but in an Israeli home.
0: And was not eating meat a conscious choice there, or...?
2: I think that for, for the way that my parents grew up and also they were both born in Israel. And I think that way that they grew up, meat was kind of an accent, not, not necessarily the primary focus. And so for us, it was much more so as a veggie forward and kind of like, I like to think about the way that um, Al's place in San Francisco thinks about meat, where they're like, all of our main dishes are all vegetarian. You can add meat to them if you want. The the meats are the sides, you know, that you can then throw in there if you need, but it's not really the main focus of the meal.
0: Totally.
1: Um, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, my father did all of the cooking growing up. My mother doesn't cook at all, um, by choice, proudly. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: and, uh, yeah, so I don't know. He, he has a, a repertoire, a fair amount of meat, a fair amount of other things, uh, generally pretty health conscious and I don't know, some like Jewish standards, Simis, which is a, I don't know, like a, a stewed. Uh, fruit and root vegetable mushy thing that comes out of the oven. Uh, what kind of fruit? I often like dried apricots or prunes, uh, raisins. It's sort of a, a sweet, savory uh, stew, I think probably with like Shabbat tr- roots or something, something you could like let sit for hours. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, also just growing up in New York City and going to public school and uh, you have access to so much interesting food and the cultures behind it um and so i don't know i'm sure eating whatever i could get my hands on and and trying all of the the diversity of food that manhattan has to offer
0: totally so what was the road that led to both of you uh working together both initially and, and again, now with the spice company, <laughs> we, we just
1: can't get enough of each other. Uh, mostly we just bicker like an old married couple, I think is the, is the dynamic. We, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, we've been friends for about 10 years. I was working in kitchens, I think when we yeah. first became friends and, and I like cooking and or he likes eating is that fair yeah he was
2: putting together these amazingly complex meals out of his like small chinatown apartment with ingredients that were all kind of gathered from around there some of which i was aware of what they were and some of which were brand new to me and so every time he cooked i was like i need a seat at this table whenever these dinners happen
1: (laughs) the restaurant i was working at at the time um i was the pastry chef and so i was i was always there later than anybody else and often There would be a lull between the, you know, savory food was done, but a couple of tables were lingering and we were waiting for them to order dessert. And so I'd hang out at the bar waiting for the the tables to order and friends would come join me. And so I think there was one night in particular, Nori came to hang out. We were waiting for a couple of tables to order dessert and then they did. And so we went back down into the kitchen, but we'd been drinking for a little while at that (laughs) point. And so we threw a steak on the grill for yeah. ourselves, I, I shouldn't talk about this on a, like a, on a vegetarian podcast, <laughs> uh, but it was a beautiful, I think it was a ribeye or it was a T-bone. Anyway, it was some, it was a beautiful, beautiful steak. And uh, we had this great meal in the kitchen with one of the other cooks. And. Um, Oh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that for me, looking back, was like a, a, a turning point in the friendship. We were like, all right, we're we're both up for eating steak at midnight in a restaurant kitchen, <laughs> um, and then then our first that restaurant closed, and and I had been making a lot of ice cream as the pastry chef there, and um, wanted to keep doing it. I I had found ice cream to be a really interesting canvas for all kinds of other flavors. Um, it's basically anything you can infuse either into into water or into fat because ice cream base is both, you can turn into an ice cream flavor. So... Uh, while I was there, I was doing kind of tamer things that we still had to be able to sell them. Uh, but as soon as- Oh, that was, right. that yeah. was a limit? That well, the, sh- the chef them. was like, "We're not. no one's gonna buy it. I don't know, I was doing things like Earl Grey ice cream and I made an avocado ice cream and I'm trying to-
0: That's so know. tame now. I
1: know, right? <laughs> well, but then we went, so then the restaurant closed and I was like, I gotta keep making ice cream. Ori, let's start an ice cream company. Mm-hmm. So I had also done some work with the Street Vendors Project, which is a street vendor advocacy organization, like a union for street vendors. And they had a cart, an ice cream cart in a closet in their office. Uh, And so we borrowed the cart and initially in my Chinatown apartment, but then later in a rented restaurant kitchen, uh, we started making ice cream of various crazy flavors Mm -hmm. um, and all inspired by the, the company was called Gorilla Ice Cream. All the flavors were inspired by revolutions and political movements. And we donated all the profits to the Street Vendors Project, so there was a sort of an activist and a, a social mission to it, uh, which worked in some respects and didn't work in others, which we can get into. But um, <laughs> uh, but was definitely fun and and gave us a chance to to work together on a project that just because of the weather in New York had a, 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 a you can't sell ice cream from a cart after September. So like we knew this was either gonna you know we were gonna do this for a little while and then it was gonna end, um, and so. I don't know, people weren't talking about pop-ups in 2010, but uh, in retrospect, I think that's probably the most accurate way to describe it.
2: Yeah, and it was at the Hester Street Fair where we were every Saturday or every Sunday sometimes. And um, I think for us, that was really a, a great way to kind of test out, like, how do we work together? How can we tell a story? How can we take something that's as ubiquitous as ice cream in New York City during the summer and kind of have our own angle to it? Um, and also figure out like what things don't work and what things were completely unsustainable and what things like, oh, my God, if we did this for another four months and another, we would, it would have just kind of totally burnt us out. And so we, we got that a really, really interesting and crazy four month experience um, that really, I think, laid the foundation for this business in terms of how we work together and, and how we communicate and what we actually wanted to build.
1: Right, right,
0: right. So what were some of the flavors?
1: Oh, uh, you want the the vegan flavors or the non-vegan flavors? Well, everything uh, is fine. The <laughs> most non-vegan flavor was a roast duck ice wow. cream, where there was a uh, there was a Cantonese restaurant in Chinatown that did really good roast ducks, and so I went and bought a couple of roast ducks and and took them apart. So put the bones into a an ice cream base, milk and cream, with. Chinese five spice, the five spices that make up Chinese five spice, which are fairly sweet. It's star anise and cinnamon and fennel and ginger, um, and and sichuan peppercorns, which which can be really citrusy and, and light. And so, I essentially, made a sweet stew with milk and cream <laughs> and Using duck the word bones, stew, sweet stew <laughs> way too often. Um, <laughs> ground more we're in the
2: conversation.
1: And <laughs> then I also next to that took all of the meat and the skin and pureed it, uh, and then. Mixed it all back together, so we had this duck, very ducky duck ice cream base. <laughs> um, so that was maybe the craziest flavor. We had four standard flavors that we did every week. The the most popular one was probably a seventy two percent dark chocolate and port wine ice cream. And I'd been a pastry chef, so the, these were all sort of composed desserts where it was a couple of scoops of ice cream and then we had designated toppings. So that one was bruléed frozen bananas and we had a blowtorch on the, you know, this was 2010, Blow blowtorches right. were a big thing. So <laughs> we had a blowtorch on the cart, we were bruléing bananas to order, uh, and that had, uh, yeah, bruléed frozen bananas and roasted cashews. Um, and that was sort of an homage to Amilcar Cabral, who was a, uh, a liberation movement leader from Guinea-Bissau in West Africa and kind of led the, Cape Verde led the, the Portuguese, uh, West African anti-colonial movement in the 60s. Um we had a masala chai ice cream sort of a nod to the naxalites the uh the indian maoists um we had what else
2: mango lemongrass and palm sugar sorbet topped with lime zest and was that spike no that one was lime was, zest and shredded, oh, coconut. shredded
1: coconut yeah that was a uh, uh, the 88 88 uprising we call it um a burmese uh the 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 monk-led pro-democracy movement in burma we just um, want to make
2: the listeners hungry. That's really
0: cool right, exactly. But hungry what we found for revolution right, and ice cream, cream. Yes, what we found,
1: and maybe not surprisingly, certainly not in retrospect, but people don't ice cream and politics don't go that well together. And and <laughs> in trying to 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 advance a political agenda, or or even to get somebody to have a more thoughtful conversation about global political movements or or ideas, ice cream is not. An effective way to right. do that. People want to eat ice cream, and they want you to shut up and leave them alone <laughs> yeah. while they're doing it. So Did you have had,
0: like propaganda? We
1: had aspirations of writing all kinds of things, pamphlets, and and we just couldn't. Uh, people, we just couldn't get people to engage on the political side of it. They thought the names were weird, uh, and that was the extent. We got we got a fair amount of press, which was nice, and and press seemed to the the journalists who covered us seemed to be interested in the political side of it. But but for the most part, our customers. It was a hot Saturday in July. They didn't want to talk about, um, you know, the Portuguese anti-colonial movement and the anti-Portuguese anti-colonial movement in West Africa. They just want to eat the chocolate ice cream. Right. Uh, and, you know, who are who, like, who, who, that's fair enough, you know?
0: Right. Well, where did your interest in, in revel- these sorts of movements come from?
1: I had majored in conflict studies in college, political science and history and sociology, all sort of focused on conflict and then i'd i'd worked for a foundation for a couple of years after college and got laid off uh, in 2008 um and I, I i like blurring professional lines and i uh, i thought it might be funny i don't know this is a stupid idea that we
2: cooked <laughs> well, the up the initial over. idea ethan was like let's just get a cart let's just show up in the street and just start selling people ice cream you know start political movements and we're like there are parts of that that could work <laughs> And luckily, the ice cream was exceptional. And luckily, the flavors were based off of kind of flavors that people were familiar with, maybe not necessarily in the form of ice cream. And also, like luckily, like part of the form of impact was donating any scraps and dollars that we had left over. To, to this street vendor project, this nonprofit, which was kind of, aside from, like, having a conversation about revolutions and ideology and all that, like, at the end of the day, I think we did, what, $20,000 in sales or something like that we over donated, the summer, which donated. was nothing crazy. Um, but we were able to donate $5,000 to the street vendor project, which was really cool. Yeah. And, and we got yeah. to use our streetcar and we, you know, and so so that was, uh, you know, some of those pieces are definitely things that we took and said, huh, this landed and this did work. Right. Let's definitely keep that, you know, when we, when we in the future... Future us get back together (laughs) and do a future. Well, did you know
0: that you were going to get back together? I think
2: we did actually. I I remember
1: having conversations at the end of the summer when we were sort of we were faced with the decision: Do we change this company? We can't be a cart anymore. Do we try to find a a contract manufacturer who's going to make these crazy flavors, and then do we try to get them into freezers at Whole Foods and and try to raise some investment because we didn't have the cash to do it ourselves, and and we. We talked about that and decided not to do that. But I remember having pretty a pretty clear agreement that there we would look for ways to work together in the future, uh, and and we did. I yeah. don't know. We we went our separate ways. Then right. I went to grad school for international conflict and development. <laughs> um, and Ori went to the dentist and got several, ca- had several cavities. I had three from a cavities, like just routine cleaning.
2: <laughs> the dentist was like, what have you done? Oh my God. <laughs> why, why, why are you like this? And, and I decided to lay off the ice cream for a little bit. Um, and, and kind of after all of that, I was like, oh my God, this startup was so interesting and, and intense in a way that like for me, work had never been. Right. But, but that was really nice. And that was exciting to kind of throw yourself wholly into something like this. Um, in a way that that working in advertising did not <laughs> bring out of me, right. um, and so I started looking for what the next thing for me would be. And while Ethan went to grad school and and eventually started doing some international aid work, which he can talk more about, um, I met these two guys who were starting a mortgage business in Switzerland, which is totally you know yeah yeah. And like in our balance, even in the ice cream business, Ethan was making all the flavors. I was helping slash trying to not get in the way in the kitchen, but mostly my. My background and expertise was around kind of some a bit of a generalist around business operations or on pricing, you know, just the things that that can kind of help. Like the product has to be exceptional. But like beyond that, we also had to figure out how we were turning this into a business and what the margins looked like and all that.
0: Corey right.
1: has always been the, the brains of the operation in case that wasn't, <laughs> <in>
0: case <laughs> well, that Ari, wasn't what, clear. What were you doing uh, before?
2: So so as an undergrad, I'd studied at University of Maryland, and then afterwards I, I had moved to New York and I was like, I want to do something entrepreneurial. I had a bunch of little projects as an undergrad. Um, but none of them really like turned into a meaningful business opportunity. Um, but again, good, good experience. and I think in, in general in entrepreneurship, like having just basically having like more sets, like more exercises is, right. is generally a good thing because you'll get you'll learn a lot along the way and, and by the time you get to the thing that takes off, Right. You know, it, t- it takes it takes a fair amount of learning and, and trial and error to get there. Oh, absolutely. But um, I was, so I was like, I want to get a, a, a set of expertise around this. And what I did is I went into the advertising world. I'd studied marketing as an undergrad. And I did about six years uh, working in advertising, in, in communication strategy, in business development, in in account management, all kinds of different sides of it where I'd work for between a year and two years in each of these roles and say, I think I get it enough. There's more to learn for sure, mm-hmm. but I think I get enough. And then I would jump to the next thing and just learn a different part of the kind of advertising marketing communications world. And part of that was also we were doing uh, a girl ice cream together while I was still working in the advertising world. Ethan was doing it full time. I was doing nights and weekends and any other moment that I had to spare. Right. And kind of with that, that was for me like a kind of verification of saying, cool, I've learned enough now time to start focusing on the entrepreneurial path versus the like big corporate or, you know, professional path in that direction.
0: Right. Totally. And it's actually, obviously people can't see you, but it is funny that you're like more creative, the creative side and the business side because you look very much you embody that I look
1: creative or, or he looks business like well,
0: it's like one's in a t-shirt and one's in a sweater and it's just like
1: or you know. he is however I have to point out wearing huh. on today after Hanukkah has ended wearing Hanukkah themed
2: socks
0: I do I love the festive socks I yes. don't get to
2: rock them that often so
0: <laughs> yeah, we're
2: now Hanukkah adjacent and I feel like that's still okay
0: Oh yes. so okay so after all the ice cream and you guys go your separate ways a little bit how does burlap and barrel begin
1: uh, I started smuggling spices back from Afghanistan in a duffel bag. Okay. The short so how
0: did you end up in Afghanistan?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I So after I went to grad school in London for international development and then moved to Afghanistan, moved to Kabul to work for a big nonprofit called the Aga Khan Foundation. Um, and I was working on a, a rural infrastructure and local governance support project. So we were working with governing councils in very remote areas of the northeast of the country. Um, and then helping those councils go through a training process and, and prioritize certain infrastructure projects that we would then construct in their communities. So they would choose, we want to build a, a school here and a bridge here. They had a budget to work with, and then we would manage the construction process of those. So I spent a lot of time traveling through the Northeast of the country, the Hindu Kush mountain range, uh, and particularly spent a bunch of time in a province called Balakshan. Um, and you know, driving for hours up a dry riverbed to visit this little village where we were building a school or building a a road of some kind. Um, so I wound up eating a lot on the road, either in people's homes or, or little kind of roadside restaurants. Um, and that province of Afghanistan in particular is famous for this wild cumin variety that grows there. As far as we've been able to tell, it's a hybrid, uh, a natural hybrid of a Persian cumin and caraway seeds that somehow made it into those mountains, um, and I, I, you know, having been a former chef, uh, I, I, I'm always looking for interesting new ingredients that I haven't worked with before, and and that really stood out, and so I would bring home suitcases full of cumin and saffron, which grows really well in the west of Afghanistan, and then honey and dried fruit and nuts and, and really any ingredients I could find there that, that I had just not found here or, or had not found anything like them here. Um, and through that process, and especially sharing it with foodie friends or restaurant industry friends in New York on my trips home, it became clear that there was uh, there were groups of people growing really interesting ingredients around the world who had no means to export them, didn't have access to the international trade routes or the way that, that exports work. Um, and there were people in New York and, and presumably other cities who were really excited about those new ingredients that they had never worked with before. Um, and it took a long time to go from that realization, which probably happened sometime in 2012 or 2013, to starting the company, which which we launched in the early 2017. And um, but that was kind of the, the genesis of it. I went from Afghanistan. I, was, I lived in Afghanistan about two and a half years and then moved to the Middle East and worked on the Jordanian-Syrian border and was, again, bringing home za'atar and uh, pickled eggplants stuffed with walnuts and, um, uh, yeah, incredible almonds and olive oil. Um, and, uh, yeah, the this idea that um, if... I, th- I think what I, I realized in Jordan related to this idea was that uh, if... If there was a system that worked in Afghanistan, there was likely going to be a similar system that would work in other places. Finding mm-hmm. small producers, growing interesting things, buying their products, and and bringing them to the U.S. Um, you know, this is not a it's not a particularly original business model. <laughs> this is pretty much the oldest business model right. in existence.
0: Right,
1: <laughs> getting something in a place where it grows well, taking it to a place where it doesn't grow well, uh, but but to do it in a way that. Um, that was consistent with my values and consistent with I think the direction that that food food was moving in general in terms of knowing where things come from, appreciating complexity in in varietals, whether it's coffee or chocolate or vegetables or, or whatever it is uh, wine obviously um, and extending that to a new category of of ingredients one that that those values had not been applied to before
0: right, and then when did ori come into the fold. So
1: I was begging Ari to do this from the beginning. He was like, this is never going to work. It's not going to. No, I'm, I'm No, I was
2: supportive. Yeah, I was, no, I I no, was no. like, yeah, let's <laughs> find, like, we talked about this in 2010 about what, what, what our next kind of collaboration, our next project would be. I I had, after, after the ice cream business, I said, I need another hit of this entrepreneurial thing. I, I don't know what to do next. And being a bit of a generalist, I was like, I, I just want to find whoever that other subject matter expert is to partner with and build a business around that. Um, through Ethan's connection of a connection of a connection, I met these two guys in Switzerland that had started a mortgage company. They said, join us here. That didn't end up happening. And then they said, here's another person that's also looking to start a company. The two of you guys can find a way to kind of apply this idea of this company that we're building in Switzerland to the U.S. We'll finance your, your company. And so I got together with a guy named Nick. Um, we we came up with a business plan. We flew out to Switzerland, said, here's what we got. They said, sounds good, and, and kind of gave us financing to get going. And so the next startup that I did was was a company called Sindio, which was a mortgage company around the thesis that people are making mortgage decisions. It's a really big and impactful decision, yet it's so complicated that people have trouble navigating it and end up kind of sub-optimizing. They end up getting something that's probably not the best thing that they could have gotten because they don't have the resources or the knowledge or the support for it. So we created a company that worked with 45 different lenders. You came to us and we would shop you in an unbiased way because most people in the mortgage industry get paid by the size of your loan, which pushes them to get you the largest loan. So we kind of took that out of it and decided to do a kind of a high-tech, unbiased company that worked across a bunch of different lenders. So you'd come to us and we would guide you through the whole process all the way through you having your home loan. We did that for four years. We raised a bunch of money. We hired a bunch of employees. We did this whole like... San Francisco, like grow quickly, spend more to make more, you know. Um, and and over four years, we did half a billion dollars worth of mortgages in 12 states. We grew to over 100 employees. And they're always like, but we'll be profitable later. Yeah, <laughs> Profit is going to come in a future phase of this business. <laughs> and towards the end of it, we just didn't, we, we didn't have the ability to raise any more money through a bunch of shenanigans with investors that we were supposed to send money, but end up not. We ended up kind of cutting the company back while we looked for to sell the company or for a bridge round or anything. And we got uh, some offers, we ended up selling the company and kind of that was that after four years. And in those four years, I mean, I, I learned more than I think I've ever learned at, at a higher intensity at any point <laughs> in my life around how to raise money, how to hire, how to fire, how, how to kind of set strategy, how to manage people, how to like all these different things that, that, although no longer applicable to me in the mortgage world, are very transferable in terms of how do you make decisions about getting a business off the ground and kind of running it in a in a thoughtful and intentional way? And so after that time I Ethan had come to San Francisco, we talked in more details about the spice business, even, even as you know Sindio was was in its last throws. Um, we uh, we actually we
1: went for a walk through the mission on that trip to San Francisco and went into Byrite, which is a, a kind of an iconic San Francisco yeah. grocery store, and had a conversation in Byrite about how wouldn't it be cool if we could get a product that would be on the shelf here? And as of what like two a month and a half ago, yeah. our spices are in Byrite. So it's we did a we spent a day doing demos in the two right locations. So it was this nice like totally. full circle. We're, we're, and we're now we're done. Yeah, now we're done. We, can, we can pack it up and go home. But but it, I mean, it really does feel in a lot of ways like plans that we made knowing essentially nothing about mm-hmm. anything <laughs> about how the business was going to run about what kinds of products about what the packaging was going to look like nothing that that there's been enough vision and shared vision that that we've been able to to move pretty consistently in in the same direction.
2: Yeah, I honestly like after after the last company, I needed to take a little bit of time to just kind of get my head back on my shoulders and Ethan kind of did all the initial phases and even the majority, the, the first year I think was just you with me maybe chiming in every now yeah. and again um, to get it off the ground and the fact that, that Ethan was able to find spices that professional chefs, which is like your, your professional like ingredient buyers, right? These guys, if you can exp- if you can win this crowd over, then, then the casual home cook should also be totally floored by this. And Ethan was just selling, 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 and, and these chefs were really excited um, about the product. And that was really strong validation really early on that, that there's something here.
0: Right. What are the challenges of kind of applying the skills that you've learned in, in past businesses to something more concrete and more global? And is totally. is there are there different challenges? Then? I
2: don't know. I, I think a lot about like the the things to me that that are that are transferable is kind of an approach to prioritization, approach to communication, an approach to kind of um, how we approach decision making and, and working together. It's it's a lot of this kind of soft stuff about how 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 Ethan and I kind of maintain our relationships, uh, have clear expectations over each other's expertise, have clear expectations over when one person says, I, this is really important to me. And, I, and the other one could be like, well, I disagree. And then you're like, well, you know, the, like how we resolve conflict and things like that. And that's been really important. How you price mortgage debt, you know, <laughs> obviously has not been very transferable, but so much of this ha- has, has been really helpful. And I think that if we had, you know, continued to do girl ice cream, or like two years later, gotten back together, I think it was very valuable for us to kind of take the time apart to kind of explore in our own paths mm-hmm. and to grow in that way and then to come together as kind of more mature, uh, uh, more experienced adults to, 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 to be able to work with this. And not just that, but I, I still live in San Francisco and I'm working on moving back to New York. But to not just do that, but to also do it largely remotely, right. and kind of be able to figure all this stuff out. There's so much uncertainty. There's you feel like the stakes are so high, especially early stage at at, at a company where something not going out or missing certain deadlines can really have a meaningful impact on the business. Um, it, it's it's really challenging to kind of keep your head on your shoulders, keep having a clear vision. And and to just and to just keep building that thing that you see as as kind of coming kind of coming out of the fog out of the clouds in the distance as it becomes more and more real.
0: Right. Totally. And so, what were the first steps when you decided to import spices under this this company? Uh,
1: import spices legally. You mean? Legally, <laughs>
0: yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> what were your like? What were your first moves? Like, what do you do when you you decide to do that?
1: Um, so the first step, there are like 12 first steps uh, <laughs> and they all have to happen at the same approximately time. I don't know. I mean, f- the first thing was was making sure that I had supply chains. So I had um, a friend, a former colleague in Afghanistan who was helping, who was shipping me the cumin, who was getting it from shepherds who harvested out in the mountains and shipping it to me. So he sent me a couple of small shipments, one th- mm, through some friends who were traveling back from Kabul in a suitcase. And then another one we did by DHL to make sure that that would work. Uh, we did a little experiment with a, a cooperative in Zanzibar in Tanzania that I had met uh, through a friend and and they were looking for a way to do their own direct exporting and hadn't found an import partner. And I, um, yeah, we arranged a little shipment from them. Uh, so making sure that I could get more of the spices right, right. before I started convincing people to buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, I got my apartment registered uh, with the FDA uh, <laughs> as a, an approved spice warehouse. Um, Is thanks- it still
0: your warehouse? You know, or do you have I, a new- I
1: just changed the registration recently. No, it's not our warehouse anymore, thankfully, but it may still be an approved spice warehouse. Amazing. I can rent out my living room to anybody else <laughs> who's looking for a place to store spices. No, no. Um, I, so that was being able to have some legal structure that, uh, if I was selling somebody spices, that there was a little bit of a paper trail to show that I was doing it responsibly. Right. Um, and then, and then just selling, I had had no sales experience before I'd worked in kitchens, which is the least salesy job you can possibly imagine. And, uh, for nonprofits, which is also pretty non salesy, right. um, So, you know, taking a backpack full of samples and picking a neighborhood and going door to door, restaurant to restaurant, I had, I had not worked in restaurants in New York for probably close to five years at that point. Um, so I, I I had some friends who were sort of in the industry, but I wasn't particularly well connected. Um, and so just like, you know, knocking on doors, talking to the chef. Uh, trying to to make the sales, most of which I did not do. It was, I mean, I, if selling is pretty brutal in, 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 at its best, and, and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and restaurant sales in particular, rest, running a restaurant in New York is so hard. The margins yeah. are so slim, rent and labor and food costs and all the other costs that, that you have to account for. So asking somebody to spend more money on... A, a spice that was better quality, but they weren't sure that that was going to be recognizable to most of their customers. Um, and, and asking them to do it with a company with basically no track record with no assurance of, of next day delivery and all of the other things the restaurants are used to. So uh, it was, it was a hard process, um, <laughs> but, but it, it moved uh, there. It start I started, it started, the spices started to get picked up. Um, I started to feel like there was some traction, we, we launched in February, 2017. Uh, we had, there was a, an article written by a, a journalist in March of
0: 2017.
1: Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing because it was Alicia's article it, it oh. was in, it was an edible, edible Manhattan, Manhattan edible Brooklyn.
0: or Brooklyn. I don't know which um, they put it in. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so, right. So Alicia wrote this profile of me and, and this stupid idea that I was pursuing. Uh, and, and it just sort of went from there. We got written up by, in the New York Times by Florence Fabricant in July of, of the same year. Um, the conventional wisdom, I think, around uh, packaged food startups is that you have a, a direct-to-consumer website, but you don't make any meaningful sales on it right. because you don't get the exposure. If you haven't raised money, you don't have, you don't have the funds to put into a, a major marketing or advertising, online advertising campaign. And so you have the site because why not? But but what we found is that there is a community of people who buy spices on the internet and who are on their own looking for new spices <laughs> on the internet. And so, especially around the press that we got, um, there was a, there was a, a real core of early adopters, people who either didn't realize that how new we were or didn't care or thought it was kind of cool to support a company. And at that point we had, there were so few orders that, I was able to correspond with every single person who placed an order. So anytime somebody ordered, I was emailing them back. Who are you? How did you find us? This is awesome. <laughs> Send me pictures. Tell me what you cook. Um, and, and it went from there. We, I, we found ourselves with a, a surprisingly balanced business with a, a decent amount of wholesale to restaurants, but also to small manufacturers of all kinds of things, um, cured meats, uh, ice cream, chocolate, coffee, snacks, uh, craft breweries, um, natural cosmetics—that's been a funny oh, angle wow. that, that we weren't expecting. And on top of that, a, a solid direct-to-consumer uh, business where people come back and people want to know what's new, and and we can do limited-run products. Uh, and and there's a, a real excitement around spices as a, a specialty ingredient versions of varieties that people have not cooked with before.
0: Right. Uh, are there trends in spices?
1: Oh, yes, for sure. I th- well, actually, I, sh- I should say I think there are trends in food in general that right. are reflected in spices because mm-hmm. they're often sort of the most iconic ingredient in a cuisine. Right. Uh, so like the, the the new passion for Middle Eastern flavors, Otto, the Ottolenghi effect is what I call it. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, um, right. Things like sumac and Aleppo or silk chili, um, pomegranate. Um, yeah, those kinds of flavors. Urfa chili, which is a, a fermented chili yeah, from southeastern Turkey, yeah. has,
0: has
1: <laughs> been big. right? Um, and sort of accidentally, we wound up having spi- those spices we sourced from a group of farms in Turkey, we sourced from a group of farms in Egypt. Um, so we, we get Middle Eastern spices from the Middle East and, and having made pretty intentional choices about what spices we're sourcing and and where we're sp- sourcing them from, mm-hmm. uh, we were able, we continue to be able to tap into that trend. Um but I also want to push people in other directions. Yep. I want them to, to taste things that may not fit perfectly into a recipe book. Or um, we've, we've had a lot of conversations, Ori and I, about how to get people to cook more creatively. It's using spices... Shouldn't be, you know, one teaspoon of this and two teaspoons of that, and following an exact right. recipe. It should be like you like making pasta. Put cardamom in your pasta sauce and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you like, you know, uh, there's just so much flexibility using spices, and the stakes are so low. If you, the food doesn't turn out great, it's not. I don't know. It's not the worst thing in the world. You order a pizza. Like the, <laughs> yeah. the people have this. There's this fear of screwing up in the kitchen, which uh, we we're trying to find ways to get people to lighten up a little bit about.
0: Absolutely. So what are the challenges of getting people like, you know, people think they know, you know, their spices, you know, they go to the aisle, they buy McCormick or whatever. Like, yeah. what are the challenges and what do you tell people who don't want to maybe spend a little more or don't want to try anything new? Like, what, what do you tell them?
1: So uh, first of all, yeah, our spices are not actually more expensive. Oh, cool. Um, there's this perception and something that we wrestle with a lot in, in thinking about how we run and how we position the business. Right. Uh, People expect our spices to be more expensive. Is that a blessing? Should we just lean into that and jack our prices up to $15 a jar? (laughs) I don't think so. We've we've decided not to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we don't need to. We're we're paying farmers fair prices for their crops. We're paying what we need to pay to ship it here. And uh, I don't know, because we're cutting out many steps in the middle, many people in the middle who... Uh, historically would have taken a little percentage here and a little percentage there, we're able to sell a much higher quality product with a, an equitable and traceable supply chain at a comparable price to what you'd pay for crappier stuff at the supermarket. Right. Uh, the the commodity supply chain tends to take several years. So when you buy spices at the supermarket, they're two to 10 years old. Um, They've been sterilized possibly several times, possibly irradiated. There are several ways to sterilize spices we can get into if, if that's of interest to anybody. It <laughs> might be too wonky. Um, but uh, they've been sitting in warehouses. You don't know where. You don't really know the condition of the warehouses. They're in often in glass jars where they're not well protected from light and heat. Um, they're just old they're just old so (laughs) supermarket spices i don't know people people ask us a lot like how long should i store my spices or how do i know when i'm buying spices at the supermarket what are good spices there are no good spices at the supermarket (laughs) they're all stale uh it's too late it's too late so so i don't know my grandmother i think everybody's grandmother has this right a jar of cloves that she's had since 1982 and they smell okay because the, I don't know. The, everything that was going to evaporate is already gone. So mm-hmm. now you're left with, you know, there's still something there, uh, but it's not, it's not good. It's, right. I don't know. We, 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 as home cooks, we often, uh, I find, make excuses for our spices that we wouldn't make for other things. Very true. Coffee. Yeah vegetables, meat, like you want to buy local apples, you want to get meat you, that was raised and killed humanely. I mean, there, there are these values uh, that just because people have not associated spices with farms or, or farmers or agricultural supply chains in the same way, uh, they don't extend those values to spices. They're these you know, mysterious, weird powders that exist in jars in our cabinets, <laughs> but they're not, they're not fruit. They're not plants, which is obviously what they once were, what they, right. what they actually are. Um, I don't even remember what your question was anymore.
0: You know, (laughs) I think you answered it. (laughs) Um, So I was reading the recent article in Savor about uh, your Guatemalan cardamom farmer. Mm -hmm. And it begins not as graphically as you had described it before the show, but you can get graphic if you like, um, with the castration of symbols. Mm. And so I wanted to ask you about kind of animal labor in the spice industry? Like, where have you seen it? Like, what does it look like? Uh, how prevalent is it? Because obviously vegetarians and vegans don't, you know, they're going to buy spices. They're going to cook with them. They don't, this is kind of a a big argument. Is like, oh, there's animal labor in literally everything. So you can never get away from it. So where does it exist in, in spice farming?
1: Yeah. Um, for the most part, spices are grown on, small farms, Mm -hmm. smallholder farmers, um, often they, as is the case on almost every small farm, they have lots of different things going on. So they'll be growing some cardamom in the case of this farm in Guatemala, but they're also raising chickens and geese and, and, um, cattle. Um, they're growing limes, they're growing chili peppers, they're growing beans, they're growing corn. Um, so it's sort of a mixed use farm as, as most small farms are. Um, the, the, Saver's story started that I guess the story itself opens on a scene of of our partner farmer in Guatemala his name is Amilcar Pereira he uh, had just gotten a bunch of bulls the the day before and they needed to be castrated I guess I don't know a whole lot about livestock or mm-hmm. or cattle uh, in general um, but Max Falkowitz who who wrote the story and I went to Guatemala and Uh, I've been there several times in the last few years, but this was his first trip. We, we rented a pickup truck sort of accidentally in, (laughs) we rented whatever car was there and it was a pickup truck, uh, in, at the airport in Guatemala city and drove up into the mountains to a city called Coban. Uh, and then from Coban, it's another three hours or so to the farm itself. The first two thirds is on paved roads. And then the last third is on pretty small dirt paths. Um, and uh, we, we wound up driving in with this truckload of cows that Amilcar had acquired or purchased. Know, the, 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 the origin of the cows was unclear, but they were on their way to the farm uh, and they needed to be castrated. So <laughs> we woke up the next morning to a bunch of the guys who work on the farm, castrating the bulls one by one, which um, not to get too graphic, but involved. I had never seen this before, but involved a bunch of guys basically lassoing and then tackling a young bull. Um, but these these are. Big animals; they weigh, you know, anywhere from 300 to 500 kilos. So it's over a, over a thousand pounds. The, the larger bulls, um, and then taking out a little Swiss Army knife, uh, slitting open the the sack uh, mm-hmm. and removing the testicles, and then sterilizing it with with alcohol, rubbing alcohol, and sour orange. There was wow. a, an orange tree next to the little pen where the bulls were and they were cutting oranges off the tree slicing them in half and squeezing the orange into the wound um, the bulls didn't like being knocked down but other than that they seemed pretty chill about okay. the whole thing i don't know, they weren't <laughs> making noise it wasn't it wasn't particularly dramatic in right, that right, sense right. and they as soon as it was done they sort of hopped back up and shook themselves off and walked away i mean i'm not an, i have no way to gauge animal pain but it was not a it was not a it didn't for me, watching it, it wasn't a traumatic experience. There right. wasn't a lot of blood. There wasn't a lot of noises and whatever. Um, I back to your question. I have not seen a whole lot of animal labor in the in the cultivation or the harvesting of spices. Um, I'm sure there, in that context and other places, they use uh, oxen or donkeys to transport spices. Um, although in, in Guatemala, they they have a the Amilcar in particular has a couple of pickup trucks that he uses. Um, spices are, are mostly grown and harvested by people by hand, right. um, for all kinds of reasons, partially just the, the geography, uh, they're not grown in, in rows in the way that you would imagine a farm to look like. Um, most of the spice farms I've been to have been pretty sort of biodynamic, right? Spice plants growing in a jungle. That's the case in Guatemala. Uh, it's definitely the case in Zanzibar where Ori and I went together in February where it's a, it's a they call it a spice jungle. There are clove trees and cinnamon trees and vanilla vines and pepper vines, and they're all just sort of growing together in the jungle. And and each farmer in the co-op has an area that he cultivates. Um, but uh, but again, it's not I. There's not a lot of animal labor in that part of it, um, just human labor, which right. which is also Im- I mean of obviously course. important and, <laughs> and often overlooked. Right, like you you eat black pepper. Black pepper is a berry. Um, the, the wrinkly black skin of the pepper is the fruit, the dried fruit, like a raisin and the inner white pit is what's spicy. So you get that kind of sweet, spicy balance in a black peppercorn, but, but every black pepper that you've eaten, m- any high quality, I should say any high quality black pepper that you've eaten was picked by hand. Somebody's hand touched that peppercorn. Um, they ripen at different rates on the same vine, um, almost always picked by hand, uh, almost always separated from the stem by hand, um, laid out in the sun by somebody spreads the pepper out in the sun by hand. It's a very manual tactile process. And, and m- maybe even more than other crops, the farmer themselves, the farmers themselves have, selves have a, a, a very physical connection to the crops that they're growing. Um, I mean, in, in cinnamon cultivation, especially cassia cinnamon, uh, the tree has to be chopped down to harvest the cinnamon. And so uh, you have this intergenerational planning cycle where parents are planting trees that their kids are going to harvest. Uh, you know, you, you watch this tree grow for 20 to 30 years before you're ready to harvest it. Um, and then it has to be chopped down. And And because of the size of the tree and the amount of work, the whole community will jump in and, and farmers will help each other out in the harvesting process. So it's this, it's, um, yeah, it's not mechanized. It's, it's really very closely tied to a farmer's expertise, to their experience of growing that specific crop. Often spice crops are pretty technical and hard to grow. Um, And often it's something that's been done there by those families for for generations, for thousands of years.
0: Totally. What's been the most surprising thing for you about getting into the spice trade?
2: (laughs) I think that uh, as on the eating side of the table, (laughs) Um, Oftentimes, like, you know, or even cooking as a a kind of home cook, like cinnamon is is just brown powder, right? Right. And that's all you kind of think about it, right? Maybe a cinnamon stick is some curled thing and you're like, cool. But, like, you don't think beyond that. And then going out there, you see the skin. It's the inner bark of a tree or a branch of a tree that then, you know, gets gets kind of brought off and then dried and then this and then that. Thinking about how saffron or the threads of a flower, thinking about how black peppercorns, right, berries on a vine. Um, making that connection all the way back. And I think, as Ethan was saying, making excuses for, like, I, I know where my fish comes from. I know where my, where, you know, where the, the vegetables were growing and what's in season and all that stuff. Yeah. But the spices were things that were just aging in my cabinet uh, of no origin, of no, and I think about how, like, things changed for coffee and tea and chocolate where like coffee was just coffee and I were like, well, actually I'd like a Guatemalan (laughs) shade grown, da da da, And you know, and how that's changed. And the spice cabinet kind of feels like um, the last vestige of that, like kind of like, we don't know where these are coming from or why we just know that we put them on. Right. 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 I think the other thing that was a little surprising to me is as somebody who is tries to be thoughtful about cooking, mostly vegetarian, thinking about health. I was still using seasonings that were primarily salt used with spices that ha- were primarily devoid of, of flavor, mm-hmm. of you know, all these things that, again, just kept making excuses for all this stuff and saying, yeah, it's, it's the other ingredients that are going to bring the flavor and the quality, and, and then I throw salt and pepper on it. Um, and just the thought of, of kind of, I don't know, being a little more thoughtful about cooking and spices as being kind of a secret ingredient for imparting amazing flavor without fat or salt necessarily adding to the food is, is a really cool tool that I now have in my belt yeah. that, that a few years ago wasn't really on the map for me. Mm -hmm. And I think the last one is, as Ethan was saying, like, it's so like, like manual labor intensive to grow and harvest and process these spices. And so often seeing farmers tending to things that truly are wild jungles and didn't feel like, like, you know, like you walk in and there's like a row of crops and this is, and you go from one to one, like it's, you know, the same way that like, if you go to see where like how wine is grown and cultivated, it's super organized, it's super clean. It's, you know, there's a real process there. This was, there were, you know, black peppercorn vines growing off of cinnamon trees and like you know it was just a really cool to see that and it just felt so much more real so much more personal mm-hmm. um and the ability to tell that story about the ingredients as as the as the buyer to be like oh i know where this came from i know who did this i know how it was harvested, i know why it was this way i know the 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 kind of context in which it grew and and the recipes in which it was kind of deployed um that makes the item itself much more valuable much more meaningful and the fact that it's also of like a a significantly higher quality is just is just then kind of the the proof is in the 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 quality of the product where maybe you've had like you know we've all had an apple that you're like this vaguely tastes of apple (laughs) (laughs) and then you go somewhere else and you're something that was recently harvested and local and grown the way it should have been grown and all that and you're like now this isn't, all right, so the same way where where often, I think what people are familiar with is they're familiar with what cloves should taste like, right. and they're familiar with, you know, many of these spices, but but in a vague sense, and I think when they have these, it's, the, the I think the story gets people to kind of pay attention and say, hmm, I, I had never thought about where cinnamon comes from, and then you open that jar, and you smell it, and you taste it, and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> that all makes sense now, and that's been a really cool experience to go through, mm-hmm. that someone that spices just weren't a big component of my cooking and now everything has like you know three or four spices that are sprinkled on and and involved in some way
0: oh amazing so um you also kind of stay true to those initial values that you had with the ice cream company. Yeah. Um, I think I recently saw on Instagram, the queer kitchen brigade kind yeah. of unboxing more of your spices. Yeah. Um, so how do you stay involved in, in that sort of thing and why is that important to you?
1: Yeah. Um, so we donate a lot of spices to the queer kitchen, the queer kitchen brigade to, uh, a non-profit restaurant called Emma's Torch, uh, a culinary training program for refugees, to all kinds of dinners. There was an ACLU fundraiser dinner at the Standard Hotel last week we donated a bunch of spices for. Um, and then personally, I'm involved in um, the, the Dream Cafe at the Allied Media Conference, which is, a, a, anyway, uh, people can look it up, but a, a, <laughs> a, a big experiment in food and activism and various other uh, socially oriented groups work, social justice oriented groups working through food. Um, part of it is, is an attempt to prove my earlier conclusion wrong. This idea that food and activism don't go together because right. people just want to eat and, and not be talked at. Uh, but looking for ways to embody those activist or or social justice values in the food itself. So how are things being sourced? Who are the people along the supply chain who are involved in that sourcing? How are they being treated? How are they being involved in it? We, uh, on this trip to Zanzibar, I mean, I do this on all of the trips, but on the trip to Zanzibar in particular, I bring back the packaged spices that we've harvested, that we've gotten from that were harvested there um, to show the farmers this is what the jar looks like. This is how it's being sold in the U.S. This is how people are cooking with it. Here are some pictures from restaurants in New York or San Francisco or other places where uh, this is a dessert that was made with your nutmeg or this is a um, yeah, dish made with, with your spices. There's just as we as consumers, as home cooks, generally don't know anything about where our spices come from, spice farmers don't know anything about where their spices are going. There's mm-hmm. this opacity uh, and that doesn't work for anybody, right? It means that they can't be cognizant of the ways that spices are being used in how they grow and harvest. So they can't target their crop to meet a particular use. Um, and it, it means that there's no feedback for them when a, a consumer, a chef, a home cook doesn't like something about it. Uh, there's, there's just no communication at all in that supply right. chain. Um, and then there's no communication between farmers in different countries. So uh, you know, taking a picture of the knife that the farmers in Indonesia were using to harvest cinnamon uh, and sending that picture to the co-op in Zanzibar to say, have you seen this? But this is a tool. Here's This is a tool that somebody else is using. Here's how it works. Um, and then they were able to to make a version of that tool. Wow. Um, we're, we're working on a, a project now to get a grinder uh, that's manufactured in Turkey, a spice grinder that's manufactured in Turkey through the guys that we work with in Turkey to get them to help us ship one of those to the co-op in Zanzibar um, so that they can start to do more value-added processing at origin, the grinding, maybe blending, some, making some some different uh, spice blends. Um, the more that we can do at origin, the more ownership the farmers have over the process uh, and and the better their spices are going to be. I mean, we're not a charity, right? right. It's not about... Uh, it's not about giving grants to farmers. It's about setting up a system where the people who know the most about the crop get to make decisions about how it's grown and how it's used rather than the pretty arbitrary way it's done now where, um, cinnamon sticks, for example, are seven centimeters long. They're always seven centimeters. (laughs) Why are they seven centimeters? Because seven centimeters is what fits in the jar that fits on the supermarket shelf, um, it doesn't make any sense. It's it's not it's not to our benefit as cooks. We don't care that a cinnamon stick is seven centimeters, and certainly not to a farmer's benefit. Uh, it's really just the processing, the packing company, the the brand. They they get they win because it's a seven centimeter cinnam, cinnamon stick. So so changing that value system, um, but then also thinking about how are spices used? Uh, what are the cultural and historical shoulders that we're standing on? You know, we're two white guys in a, a business that. For a long time was dominated in very negative ways by white guys mm-hmm. um, and so recognizing our cultural and, and historical role in this, um, doing some of the 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 labor to to fix that right? right like we as white guys have responsibilities to to make up for the shitty things that our ancestors did <laughs> um, and and so making sure that that not only are our sourcing practices perfect, mm-hmm. you know, like like up to a standard that I don't think any other spice companies is holding themselves to. Uh, but then also the ways that we're selling, the ways that we're distributing, who are we talking to? Are there people who... Um, who can't afford our spices but would like to, and, and how do we engage with them? We, Ori and I had a whole conversation yesterday about, is there a way to offer a discount to people who are from the countries that we're sourcing those <laughs> spices from? So if somebody from Afghanistan wants our Afghan cumin I want to, I, and can't afford the price that we're selling it for, I want to find a way to make that work for them. Right. Likewise, the cobonero chilies from Guatemala were the only company importing that chili variety to the U.S., but it's an iconic Guatemalan ingredient. Um, And so are there, are there ways to make it accessible to a Guatemalan population in the U S if it isn't already. Um, and, and aligning ourselves with groups whose missions I care deeply about queer kitchen brigade and many others, um, to, to just complete that story, right? Like, like equitable practices from, from the farm to the, to the plate, to the, to the diner, to the chef, um, and making sure that, that the right the right people are, are involved in that process along the whole, the whole stretch.
0: Right, right, right. And so what is, I don't, like, what do you think, what's the connection between, like, what a high-end chef in a fine dining kitchen might do with your, like, how does that connect back to all of this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I said earlier that we're not a charity and I, that's right. important, I think, to highlight because there's this idea, especially in a social enterprise and a mission-driven or a mission-driven company like ours, that either you're doing good or right. the the quality is really high. That there's this, some for some reason, this idea that you can't be both, which is kind of ridiculous. I don't really know where that came from, but we get better spices because we have good relationships right. with the farmers who grow them. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not crazy. It's not rocket science. Like ha- treat somebody as a partner, engage with them, find out what they want to be growing, what they love about what they do, uh, pay them more for that product. It's a win, win, win. win. I don't know, like it. It's, yeah. That's the way that it should work. Yeah. So so we we supply a lot of good restaurants because chefs who don't really care that much about sourcing practices, don't really care that much about... Uh, the social mission of our company recognize that the quality is right. above and beyond anything they've tasted. So we supply Eleven Madison Park with uh, coriander from our, our partner farms in Egypt. Um, that's we get coriander from them because that's where coriander is from. It's native to Egypt and the Middle East. Uh, there are records in Egyptian tombs of coriander being used as a as an ingredient in embalming processes. Um, in in this attempt to get to sort of the source of of this flavor, uh, we connected with this group of farms in, in around a city called Fayoum in central Egypt. Um, and it's great. I mean, it's excellent coriander and, and to have that, that be validated by, by seeing it on the menu at a place like 11 Madison park is, is pretty
0: exciting. Totally. And so what do you think are, I mean, you've talked about this, but what kind of misconceptions have you, do you think you're clearing up around, around spices for people? If any
2: um I think a lot of people view view spices as a, like a, primarily through the eyes of seasonings, mm-hmm. I'm saying like you know what is, what is the best sellers at McCormick are chicken adobo and Montreal mm-hmm. steak
0: yeah is,
2: you know <laughs> um, and so I think that that those are really simple and really straightforward ways to kind of impart flavor to food but but you know you you end up using ingredients that are that are subpar um I think that a lot of times people are have goals to cook more or to cook in a certain way or to kind of take care of themselves or cooking is a is a form of of caring for others and showing love or you know it could be a agreement with yourself and around health and there are all these different reasons that people kind of bring people into the kitchen and over to cooking and and it's really interesting to to kind of talk about spices as potentially a kind of secret weapon in that path and to be the thing that that when you're cooking for others say oh my god how, how did you get this flavor um, and so I think that's one is kind of the one of the misconceptions. That, oh, spices are just kind of either a thing that you just pour on stuff and hopefully it tastes better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just this general use thing. Or they say, oh, I only use a, a very specific spice for this one thing when I buy it once a year and I make this one dish and then it sits in the back of the cabinet for the rest of the time. Um, I think the other misconception is just around like what are spices, and they're not just these these powders, you know, that, right. that that have arrived here in some way, and to tell that story. And I think that that gives people more value, and gives them hopefully also more context into how to use it and how to be playful with it and all that. Um, I
1: think there's also, uh, I mean, back to your earlier question, also there's a there's this default orientalist narrative around spices this like exoticization that they come from you know dusky places you know like this this crazy sense that um the people who the the cuisines that spices are indigenous to if if there are cuisines that spices are indigenous to, it's another conversation Um, uh that that somehow they're inaccessible uh that that they're they're hard to understand that uh you can't cook flexibly with them, you can't cook creatively with them, Um, and trying to break that notion up a little bit for, for cooks who have not had a whole lot of experience cooking with spices. Um, And I think a
2: notion that we're kind of playing with for ourselves is to say, can we build a business where kind of impact is intrinsically linked with product quality? And what that means is that if we're successful in growing the business, then we'll be successful in growing our impact. And as we're able to grow, we'll have more opportunities that are accessible to us to be able to kind of work with the farmers, longer term guarantees... Um, um, potentially if, if, as we were talking about the grinder, like how do we get a grinder to Zanzibar so they don't have to send it to a third party or they don't have to, you know, how do we keep more of that as value added at source? And that's kind of our little experiment with this business is can we kind of build the business that, that has these two parts of it intrinsically linked together? And then what does that look like as we grow and have the ability to have more and more influence? So far, we're just, we're wrapping up our second year. So much of this is around like year one was like how do we get spices into the country that doesn't involve Ethan's living room <laughs> <laughs> or Ethan's duffel bag, <laughs> Ethan's duffel bag. Um, and kind of building that supply chain. Right. Um, and then year two has been a lot about like saying, well, now that we're doing this, how do we build kind of the business systems around this, like both like accounting, pricing, finance, like just how do we think about all this stuff that turns this into a business that we can then kind of repeat and scale and grow, and 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 now. In, in kind of going to year three, we have some bigger players that are coming and talking to us. You know, William Sonoma saying, hey, what are you guys up to? Ooh. Which is really cool. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so now we have the ability to to kind of have this conversation on a larger scale. And the first two years have been a lot of me and Ethan having these conversations saying, well, let's assume that someday we'll get the stage. Like, let's say we'll get a chance to have an impact. What do we want that to be? And what does that look like? And also, what? how do we do it in a way that that we don't Sell out, and then right. we're like, "Hey, sorry, guys!" Like, so the the commodity supply chain, which is the vast vast majority of how spices kind of come into this country and what's accessible, which is why the chefs are so excited about what we're bringing because we're going outside of that. But the vast majority of it is optimizing for consistency and for availability. Mm-hmm. And by what we're doing, and we price. know, right, and price. Um And for us, like like there are harvest dates to all right. of these spices. They're not constantly grown. They're not constantly available. And so, how do we play that when when somebody's keeping space on a shelf for us or when we have people that are cooking with it and ran out of it we can be like sorry come back in six months when we have more and so we're trying to figure out how do we play that 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 game and make sure that we have that we live up to the quality the freshness the the clarity and sourcing but now we're not doing it for you know thousands of jars anymore we're doing it for tens of thousands or you know beyond that how how does that grow into that and that's what we're gearing up for in year three of our business
0: yeah usually I kind of finished with asking people whether like cooking or eating is political but I think we've gone over that. So yeah. like how hopeful do you feel about burlap and barrels ability to do what you thought like the ice cream project couldn't do. So. Yeah.
2: So I, I have a, a quick thought on this. I think it's, it's about kind of evolution and, and, and how somebody goes through this decision. I'm talking about home cooks right now. I know chefs. Everyone has their own process. My thought is that a home cook will generally be like, this is interesting. Let me understand why the story behind this to make a decision of whether or not I should buy it. Mm-hmm. If they decide to buy it, then they take it home. Then they have their kind of second experience where they're like, how does this smell and taste? How does it integrate into my cooking? and all of that. And I think then the third moment is saying, okay, I know the story, I understand the quality. Now let me understand more of like where these things come together and what's the larger context and why does this work and how can I use this more and how can I integrate this into my life? And so I think to us, it's about playing, playing this out and like setting up basically our communication to say, we're a single origin, direct trade spice company. Here's what that means to you. And then they get to try the spice. And then we can say, if you like that, Come back. We'll tell you a little more about it. Let's experience this. Let's go through here. Let's understand all the spices that are grown in Zanzibar, why they're grown that way, who are the people growing them, and 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 where else we can go from here now that you've already kind of had this initial experience. And to me, like that, that's the platform. It's not a like come up to the shelf and we start yelling at you about political movements that are <laughs> happening and why the spice trade evolved in this way. Um, I think it's much more so about about kind of taking one step closer every single time with every interaction and us kind of let it like convincing you to to give give us your permission to kind of take you through that story and to kind of go deeper and deeper in it and that's what we really love love about it and that's what we're able to see but it doesn't happen over a three month trajectory that happens over time and customers coming back and spending more time with our product we get the chance to do more and more of those things and so to me i think that that's the evolution of that kind of messaging and that ideology and that and that impact is kind of grows with the business and what that means for us is that we need to think about this business almost like in a 10 year arc or you know what no longer trajectory because that's a trajectory over which we can build a business that, that that's large enough and, and capable enough and, and has enough customers and has enough people that are kind of listening to and watching what we're doing to being able to really get a message across a meaningful way, and not just us, but also with our farmers. We I would love to be able to do multi-year agreements. I would love to kind of help figure out how do we support the farmers in building out their capabilities and cutting out the middlemen in the process to ensure that then we can have a, a longer, sustained relationship with them that supports their livelihood and supports our business. And it's a kind of mutually beneficial relationship.
1: I think there's a, a pretty risky narrative around food and politics and Absolutely. especially around eating food and polit- food, eating food uh, and having that be political, where there's this idea that if you eat the food of a, another culture, another country, you're going to automatically sympathize with the oh, people God. behind yeah. it, which, which <laughs> is flawed in a lot of ways. Primarily because, like, what if you don't like the food from that country? Kind of, does that mean you don't like the people? I mean, yeah. like, there's a... But also, it's it's obviously, as our president and many other people have demonstrated, it's possible to like the food from a country and, and be really pretty racist about the people who originated that yeah. food, whose, whose culture and cuisine have developed into whatever you're eating today. So um, trying to step away from this, like, eat people's food and understand right. them narrative uh, and and more towards a like look at the supply chain. look at where this comes from. There are pictures on our website of the farms that of the farmers that we work with when, when we travel to visit our, our partner farmers. We do a, on Instagram a portrait series of the farmers themselves uh, with little bios. Um, it's, it's really about finding a way to make that connection more personal. Um, maybe you've never eaten Tanzanian food, but here's a picture of a Tanzanian farmer who grows amazing cinnamon and you're going to eat the cinnamon that, that he and his family have been growing for, for generations. Um, literally no pun intended, baking those ideas into, into a product uh, so that it's not so much about eating something unfamiliar and, and trying to empathize with the, the culture of the cuisine behind it, but it's about eating familiar things with, with a, a deeper sense of, of, how they got to your table um, that that's what we we try to spend a lot of time that's what we do spend a lot of time thinking about whether we actually whether we actually make any impact on it whether we actually move the needle at all is is yet to be seen but
2: Well, and, but part of our philosophy is that we didn't want to just do this for for one spice we wanted to say for ethan's early early kind of revelation when he mm. was traveling between and working in these countries is to say can we do this as kind of a platform can we do this across multiple spices and multiple farmers multiple countries and kind of, kind of turn your pantry into this kind of international stage um, of these different of these different flavors and of these different products, um, and that means that that one story in and of itself, we're, we're not focusing all of our energy on this one spice from this one farmer. But what that hopefully means is that you can come to us whenever you're ready to restock your pantry, whenever you're ready to start cooking, or wherever you have some a friend that has a housewarming, whatever, and we can kind of get them started down that path. And it could be with one product, or it could be with eight products, or whatever it may be. And and that's kind of the first step into into our world, and and we welcome you into that. <laughs> and then you know, hopefully we can build a relationship as as your spices complete.
0: Thank you guys so much.
2: Thanks for having us. This is great.